Welcome to A Pot Up on a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. And I'm Mr. Vosiliatis. Today we're going to talk about the United States shedding its British skin. Here we go. Okay, so we want to start off by the domestic policy that promoted economic expansion. And what really kind of uh, promoted this was a young politician from Kentucky named Henry Clay. And he is going to take all of the problems and issues that uh, started and actually pre uh, were predicated before the War of 1812, and he's going to want to make our country better. And the way he's going to do that is propose a four-pronged plan called the American system. Okay, the first thing that he wants to do is develop American manufacturing. He learned very quickly that, if you remember and recall in the previous lecture notes, that the Embargo Act kind of was embarrassing for the United States. We thought that we can survive without English or French trade, and we've turned out that it hurt us more than it hurt them. Yeah, we weren't quite ready right. to go out on our own yet. And one of the things that this was a key moment of the American system was he wanted to make an effort to correct that. We want to establish an independence. We want to make sure that we never are put in that situation you just mentioned, where we we were reliant on external factors or foreign nations for our economic success. We wanted to be independently uh, sufficient. And that kind of leads into the second point, because if you want to develop manufacturing industries at home, you have to somehow deter customers from buying other in other areas, right? You don't want uh, Americans buying uh, British-made goods or French-made goods. So in order to do that, you have to kind of create an artificial barrier known as a tariff. And we're going to pass our first protective tariff through Congress in 1816. And this was specifically designed to raise some sort of tax on imported or foreign goods. This would, by virtue, deter the behavior and convince Americans to buy American-made products, thereby increasing American manufacturing. And this was incredibly helpful for a developing economy, specifically an American developing manufacturing economy. It is not something that is always uh, advised by economists, but in this unique situation, it worked well. The next moment of, or element of the American system is the National Bank. The fact that it was um, not present during the time of War of 1812 caused a lot of difficulties in funding for the war. So, it was reinstated with the charter of the National Bank after it had expired right before in 1811. And the last one was an emphasis on internal improvements, basically infrastructure, roads and bridges, and different elements of transportation. If you want the economy to do well, you need to move goods quickly. And that's what this was about. All right. So um, we want to try and help link the southern and western farmers all the way to the eastern markets and to the the um, ports of the Northeast that are going to be interacting with European trade. Okay, most of these we know as of today as simple things like the Pennsylvania Lancaster Turnpike. All right, and a turnpike is specifically they used to have a giant, I guess, log in the middle of the road, and as you would pay your toll, they're basically toll roads. You pay your toll, they turn the pike to the side and allow you to pass. Right. But it was a way to raise revenue for these things and to pay for the roads themselves. But the infrastructure was critical to develop in order for us to be a highly functioning economy moving forward. All right, things like the Cumberland Road, and later on, the Erie Canal, which linked the Hudson River to the Great Lakes. And that is incredibly important to connect the Midwest to New York. Right. So this plan is going to be proposed through Congress. And pretty much because there's only one party, the Federalists, it will be pushed right through Congress. And this is going to de uh, develop the rapid industrialization plan that was conceived all the way as far back as Hamilton. So it seems like Hamilton's vision of America is being achieved through the efforts of Henry Clay and other Federalists in Congress. We're going to jump right now into how this American plan uh, kind of helped uh, develop the growth of industry. Now, 
industry was developing prior to Henry Clay's American system, but it was going to be uh, exponentially increased because of it. By 1791, there's going to be a British immigrant by the name of Samuel Slater. He's an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur can be defined as an individual that actually takes, takes business risks for the sake of making money. What he's going to do is he's going to take some of the, the manufacturing processes. He's going to note all the processes done in England. If you can recall, Industrial Revolution started in England. He's going to take all those practices, and he's going to bring it to the United States, and he's going to develop the first U.S. factory. This is going to have a very big significance for other entrepreneurs, and they're going to kind of copycat that. The reason why we talk about him in particular is the United States, like the ancient Romans, will take the ideas of others and make them more efficient. And that is our greatest contribution as a country. We're not necessarily the ones who create these ideas, but we come up with more innovative ideas to make them more efficient. And secondary in terms of key figures in this moment, in terms of the growth of industry, is Eli Whitney. About 20 years later, after Samuel Slater, he helped develop a system of interchangeable parts. Okay, So revolutionized the way manufacturing is done. Instead of one individual worker working from the beginning to the end, from making it from scratch, you have the beginnings of what we later see with the assembly line. But interchangeable parts allow you to not only create things faster because they're already pre-made, right. but also you are able to fix things quicker because one thing is right. broken, you can plug the part in for that. And it becomes the basis of mass production of goods, which we also refer to as Taylorism. So someone like Francis Cabot Lowell in 1813 is going to take the innovations of Eli Whitney as well as Samuel Slater, and he's going to kind of start the one of the earliest textile industries in uh, Boston, um, and he's going to call it the Boston Manufacturing Company. And eventually it's going to lead up into what we call the Lowell system, which we will mention uh, later on. Now, another key element of growth here in um, this time period is in 1811, New York state government passes a law that really helps give rise to corporations. And what that does is it, it helps facilitate individual private businesses their ability to raise capital, and capital would be money used for investment, right? So how do they do this? By opening up companies to be able to sell shares of stock in their company. So the, the stock market that we know of as of today, it got its start in 1811, right? And that is simply where if I owned a business, which I do, um, <laughs> if I was going to sell share or part ownership, I have 100% ownership right now. If I wanted to give you 50%, right. I would give you 50% of the available shares. There are a certain amount of shares available in every company. That's called the market cap. And that is what allows them to open it up to publicly trading their shares of stock. So when you own stock, you own a share of that company. And the price of that stock dictates the overall value of one company. So rather than having to get loans in the past, you now can access capital by getting investors who are more interested in contributing to successful businesses, and it helps them get the, uh, their, raise their money much quicker. So with the growth of uh, governmental policies that kind of encourage uh, manufacturing, plus the growth of industry, plus the growth of capital that we mentioned, it's obvious that a lot of people that are not going to be able to own property or land are going to be attracted to some of these urban centers and start to work at this factory. So we begin to see the development of modern labor. Uh, the factory owners are going to find it, however, very, very, very difficult to find cheap labor due to westward expansion. Think of it this way. If there's available land, is it the option to be a self-reliant, independent farmer? Most people are going to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Because if you become a, a wage earner, you are going to be highly dependent on these factory owners. Remember, Thomas Jefferson kind of warned uh, the, the, the founding fathers of this and the possibility of having people um, developing some sort of reliance on them. In fact, we're going to later hear the word uh, wage slaves, and we'll, 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 we'll expand upon that. Uh, in, in other periods. Um, but other other types of people are going to be targeted to have available labor, one of which will be women. So we have women who are, for the first time in a long time, um, are really getting an opportunity to work outside the home. They did need the permission of their father or their husband in right. order to do so. But this gave the opportunity for many uh, lower class to working class women right. to get out of the home and help earn money for their um, families. Uh, in addition to that, you have situations where children are being hired. Right. You know, only the wealthy children were going to school back then. You know, 
the public schools were not mandating attendance, and many of the poor children in the cities that you mentioned, the only way that they were going to uh, survive, their families were going to survive, was if they were also um, bringing in a wage. And we really have to emphasize that labor and, so, and industry is really, really, really small, embryonic at this stage in development. And there's going to be the development of a slow yet steady rise of unions by the men that are working. Keep in mind there are no female unions, no children unions. This is going to be for the male workers that are going to choose to work in this industry. And most are going to be considered illegal during this time, or at least not recognized by most state governments. Okay. Now, once again, we're going to bring up the institution of slavery because it plays a crucial role in the development of our country. And... What's important to understand with that is in 1808 is when we have a constitutional ban of the slave trade. It was a compromise. It It was an agreement made by the founding fathers during the Constitutional Convention. Exactly. So at that expiration, a lot of people thought it would eventually just expire on its own. Fewer slaves arriving on the shores of the Americas naturally would die out. But because of the southern economy had become more and more reliant on it, along with the cotton gin, making it much more profitable... The other thing is the soil exhaustion in eastern southern states. They were having to redo some of their um, the way in which they were planting. But the, there's a few things that really changed this. And that was with the scarcity of the slaves, they became more and more valuable. And slaves themselves could now be reproduced only by one way, which is for forcing the slaves to have children. And so the textile mills in the north that we think are developing an industry for the north are also creating the same demand for the cotton that the south is being is created. So not only the textile mills in the north, but also in Europe and England, the westward expansion. Later on, we'll talk about the Missouri Compromise in terms of the um, how that encouraged westward expansion. But these three things really led to the increased demand for slaves. So you have to understand that there is an actual symbiotic relationship between the North and the South at this point. We have a tendency to think that slavery developed in the South only, and it was only the South that kind of promoted the the institution of slavery, and the North were innocent, and then we fought in a civil war in which we had to go and free the slaves. And lucky us that we're on the right side of history. We have to make you understand that the textile industries in the North needed that of cheap and available later, uh, labor of the South and then the extraction of cotton to be sent up there to make said textiles. So you have to understand that there's a relationship being had here at this time. All right. So one thing about growth and about our economy throughout the history of our country has been over periods of time of great um, success and great um, wealth being generated in our country, there always tends to be a downturn. And one of the things that I learned very young from my father actually was two things move the market, okay. fear and greed. And so one of the things that we're going to talk about here is known as the Panic of 1819. So it's the really the first financial panic that we have since the Constitution is ratified. And the reason why is because we have a central bank that is trying to control what's going on. So when the bank tries to control inflation, which is the value of the, the dollar decreasing, Therefore, prices are going up. That's what inflation is, meaning you can't buy the same amount. It's the same thing your grandparents say back when in my day, you know, hot dogs were a nickel. Um, but that's the argument for inflation. Over time, there's a natural rate of inflation. But all of a sudden, when it skyrockets, that can really hurt an economy. So what the banks try to do is to tighten the circulation of money, thinking that will help the, the overall value. Make it very difficult to issue loans, uh, maybe raise interest rates, the penalty in which uh, you have to pay in order yeah. to get a loan. Interest rates like are, are also known as like the cost of money, what it takes to get right. a loan, right? right? How much it will cost you right. on the back end. So the problem is they overreact and overstep their bounds and they clamp down too much and it restricts the flow of money so much that unemployment, bankruptcies, and imprisonment for people that are indebted all occur. And this really hurts the poor Western farmers who are caught in a cycle of debt. Farmers continuously are stuck in a situation where they have to go on faith alone in terms of, all right, what's the harvest going to be like this year? We have to buy everything in the spring and just hope for a return in the fall. So they are the most uh, risk of, uh, not adverse, excuse me, exposed to risk out of anybody. Remember, we're moving away from uh, like a wealthy, uh, the wealth being determined by land 
and the wealth now be determined by capital, right? So these farmers may be land rich, but they need capital to invest in seeds, equipment, and like Mr. Copeland said, the 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 nature of farming is kind of volatile. Yes. Like it's it's dependent on the weather. So they are going to take loans from the banks. They may or may not get a surplus crops to pay back those those loans. And then like we said, they will be tied into a circle of debt. When economic crashes happen like the panic of eighteen nineteen, it just exacerbates the entire yeah. situation. Because if, if any um, anything influences the demand that they rely on, right. if people aren't buying the same amount that they expected, that's going to kill their ability to make a profit. And so that's why routinely in the first 150, 200 years of our country's history, we see that every economic downturn, it's the poor and farmers that tend to get hurt the most. Right. And this will validate Jefferson's fear of a national bank. Remember, he he envisioned an American society where everyone would be yeoman, independent farmers. And yeah. something like this would be something as proof to the Jeffersonians or the people that believed in Jefferson's ideals. Okay, so uh, now having Marbury versus Madison happen in the previous time period uh, or era under uh, Madison, we are going to talk about the spirit of Hamilton, how it resides now in the Supreme Court. And that's Chief Justice John Marshall, one of your favorites. Right. And even though Hamilton died in the duel with uh, Aaron Burr, we still see the tendencies to expand the federal government and centralize the federal government within the courts. So John Marshall, even though the Federalist Party has uh, largely died, um, he's going to be one of the last remaining um, like partisans within that group, and he, his opinions and decisions of the Supreme Court will enhance and basically ensure the legal authority of the judicial branch as well as the federal government over state governments. Yes, so we have five examples of the most important and prominent Supreme Court cases here. Um, the two that I would focus on the most would be McCullough versus Maryland and Gibbons-Ogden. McCullough, Maryland is where the Supreme Court rules that states cannot tax federal institutions. So what happened was we had a um, national bank institution in the state of Maryland that Maryland said, oh, well, they're here doing all this business. Let's tax them and make some money off the federal government. Right. So they basically declared that that is unconstitutional, cannot happen. So it, it helped establish the supremacy of the federal government. And in 1821, Gibbons v. Ogden, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government has control over interstate commerce. There was some dispute whether or not uh, one state actually has rights over like the ferry line that was being established during this time. And the Supreme Court kind of, again, established the supremacy clause. All right. So um, moving from domestic to foreign policy, we're going to talk about how in many ways, foreign policy can promote economic expansion. And one of those things is an increase in nationalism that was going on after the War of 1812. You see this in a variety of things, literature, music, and policy. Specifically, the Star-Spangled Banner is created during the War of 1812. In short, we were getting a little bit more arrogant and increasingly pride, proud of our nation. And we're going to be a little bit more aggressive in relation to other people. For sure. I mean, the uh, we're no longer the little underdog nation that you know, was able to somehow upset the British. We beat them back twice. Right. So now we're starting to bow our chests out, roll our shoulders back, and walk tall in the and uh, what's world's really, and affairs. What, right, and what's really telling about our newfound respect for ourselves, it's also how other nations respect us. And it's being reflected in some of the agreements that we're having with in the English. In the Rush-Bagat Agreement, by the way, in 1817, keep in mind, we five years ago we were in conflict. Now we're entering agreements with our so-called enemies, and it's going to be a disarmament pact with England. We're going to both agree to limit naval buildup in the Great Lake region, and we're going to both limit the fortifications along the U.S.-Canadian border. So basically what that means is it implies respect. We're not going to bother you. You're not going to bother us. We have clear boundaries. Prior to this, in the War of 1812, British, with, remember, impressment and provoking Indians to fight along the Ohio River Valley, they didn't seem to respect us. Now they're seeing us as a legitimate nation. Yeah, and that continues with the Treaty of 1818 the following year. So the improved relations with England brought about sharing of fishing rights. Right. Okay, So off the coast of Newfoundland, which is way north of Maine in the northeast section of the Atlantic, um, of a North American in the Atlantic, is probably the you know most populated ocean area of the ocean that we have for fishing, an untapped resource. So they're sharing that na uh, natural resource instead right. of competing for it. Also, on the opposite coast, we are agreeing to have joint occupation of what we know now as the Oregon Territory. We also set the northern limits of what is the Louisiana Territory, the boundary we know now 
that separates Canada and North and uh, the United States. Excuse me. That is known as the 49th power. So keep in mind that we're going to have joint occupation of the Oregon Territory because that will bear some relevance later on in other periods. So we're, we're, we have once a bully now becoming a friend as a result of us standing up to an imperial power known as England. We're also going to not only be like friendly to them, but we're going to begin to have some sort of joint effort in terms of responding to other European nations. And this is going to be reflective in the Monroe Doctrine. So there is going to be a tendency for monarchs to form some sort of alliance to support Spain by maintaining their hold in the Americans. Keep in mind, there are going to be a lot of independence movements kind of proliferating throughout South America. If you recall in global history, Simon Bolivar, you've got a lot of things that form uh, Bolivia and Colombia, and a lot of the monarchies don't like the rise of some of these republics. They don't certainly like the rise of America. They certainly don't like the rise um, and the consequential squashing of the French. They don't like the limited monarchy in England. So what it begins to happen is they're going to form some sort of coalition to support Spanish colonial ha uh, land ownings in South America. The English obviously are not going to appreciate that because they kind of want some sort of like uh, piece of the pie, so to speak. So they're going to ask America to kind of have an issue, a joint statement to warn any of these monarchies or these nations with monarchies to interfere in South America. And what that brings about is really a shift in American um, foreign policy. So there's a bold move by John Quincy Adams here. And what that is, is to establish what we know of now as the Monroe Doctrine. Right. This is something that's going to come up for the next 150 years of American history because the Monroe Doctrine was the foreign policy that, policy that dictated all other policies for us. First off, it was a warning. Okay, We were going to do this to warn all of Europe, all of the Eastern um, Hemisphere, that the United States is a sovereign nation, one, right. and also... You better stay out of the Western Hemisphere because right. if you do come over here, there will be an understanding that that is an aggressive maneuver. All right. So John Quincy Adams argued that this would show U.S. strength. We would no longer entangle in any alliances, just like President Washington had said in his farewell address. But this would also promote our expansion further south. We could maybe utilize the nations in Central and South America for colonies just like those European nations had in the past. And we could possibly benefit our economy because of that. All right. So this doctrine warned that any expanding influence in Western Hemisphere would be met with military power of the United States. The interesting thing is the enforcement of this policy will be enforced by a nation not as America. It will yes. be enforced by England, right? So therein lies the interesting thing about the Monroe Doctrine. It is has symbolic value. It's not like everyone else listened to this doctrine and was like, oh, we're scared of the Western we're, we're scared of entering that Western Hemisphere. We got we gotta listen to America. But it does show where we're gonna go in terms of our foreign policy. Let me give you some sort of a metaphor for an example. I want you to imagine if you have a little sibling or a little cousin, you enter their room and they actually kick you in the shin. They say, if you enter this room again, I'm gonna smack you. At first, you think that's funny, that's cute, they're little, you can clearly crush them. But that does kind of show you or is a foreshadowing of what what kind of person they're gonna be when they get older. And that's what the Monroe Doctrine is. It is it is a piece of foreshadowing of how we're going to treat uh, nations outside the Western Hemisphere. So keep that in mind because we're going to be mentioning the Monroe Doctrine later on in the 20th century. Yeah, so that's a really valuable um, asset that the American um, government has as the British are our allies. The greatest naval power in the world is going to help us establish our individual sovereignty. All right, so uh, what we're going to conclude here is the section talking about playing dirty with the Spanish, specifically with Andrew Jackson's military campaign that starts in an international incident. And I'd like to mention that I would like you to, to see the stark contrast between playing nice with the English and playing dirty with the Spanish. Evidently, we kind of ally ourselves with people of similar culture and language. We cannot ignore the fact that the Spaniards uh, are not of the same stock as Americans, and that might also have affected us being a little bit more aggressive. Spain has, uh, has been deteriorating since the Spanish Armada in 1588, and uh, we're kind of taking advantage of that. So in 1817, uh, the president 
uh, is going to commission Jackson to stop raiding Seminoles along the Florida-Georgia boundary. At this point, Seminoles are a very specific uh, group of Indians uh, with a mixture of African um, and native roots. And what they're going to do is they're going to cross the border from Florida to Georgia. They're going to burn plantations, help rescue slaves, and then bring them back to Florida. Now, it's a matter of jurisdiction. Florida at this time is owned by Spain. So the, 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 object, the objective is clear. The president wants Jackson to defend Georgia plantations. They're going to stop it. In 1818, Jackson will lead a force into Florida, violating the sovereignty of Spain. He's going to burn several Seminole vill villages and drive out the Spanish governor. Keep this in mind. In modern contexts, this would be an act of war. Okay, You're invading into someone's airspace, invading into someone's uh, boundaries, and you're basically saying, we don't respect you as a sovereign nation. We're going to burn down your property. But because of this, and calculating that Spain is too weak to attack the United States at this point, John Quincy Adams, who doesn't necessarily like Jackson, will persuade this frightful Congress to let Jackson continue to do this because he calculates very cleverly that Spain will not fight back. Yes, and that what that does is give us what is known as the Adams-Onus Treaty, and that's in 1819. Adams successfully brokers a deal with them, seeing that what Andrew Jackson had done, he took quick action and started negotiating with them, saying we need to solve this problem here. We may not have to go to war, but hopefully we're going to negotiate and establish some type of peace treaty, and that's what they got. So Spain relinquishes their claims to Florida. They realize that they are it's an isolated element of the southeastern part of North America that they are holding on to, and that since the once British colonists, now the Americas, have this territory, it is going to be something that is going to be difficult to hold on to. So Spain receives $5 million in exchange, and in accordance with that, the United States decides to give up their claims to Texas, which we will only get back maybe about 30 years from now. All right, so now we want to make a shift from um, the domestic policy and the economic issues of America in this time period from 1824 to 1844 and focus more on the political change in this era. And this is often referred to as the era of good feelings. We mentioned before that it's right. a one-party rule. So the evaporation of the Federalist Party, the dissolving of it at the Harvard Convention, really changed the dynamics of this um, short period in Congress because all of a sudden everybody agrees with everyone. Right. So, right. hey, I have an idea. That's a great right. idea. Why right. don't we pass that? So everyone's voting on the same side. It becomes a lot easier to get things accomplished. So unified federal government legislation is passing rapidly and quickly. And so a political ideology that had separated the Federalists and Democratic Republicans in the past is still present, right. but now it's within the party of the Democratic Republican Party Therefore, it inevitably splits in 1824. So the Democratic Republicans start supporting more Federalist-esque policies or more pro-business, centralized government type of policies. They would be considered more of the conservative wing of their Democratic-Republican um, colleagues, I guess you could say. Right. And actually, in, in tandem with this era of good feelings, also sparks the politics of what we call the common man. What is characterized as the common man are people that are not um, wealthy landowners or don't own a tremendous amount of property, do not participate in like legislation, legislative bodies or judicial bodies or executive bodies within their local or state governments. Um, and they're going to be just basically poor farmers. And there's going to be a very big movement that starts to happen by the 1820s of universal male suffrage or voting rights that will be adopted in a variety of state constitutions. So in Indiana, for example, 1816, they're going to adopt universal male suffrage, which basically stipulates that men that are not necessarily large property holders can now vote. This will have a tremendous impact on not only the voting electorate, but also office holding. In 1818, two years later, Illinois will follow Indiana, and Missouri in 1821 will also pass similar statutes. Other eastern states will also quickly follow this movement. They're going to lower property and religious qualifications to vote and hold political office. And as a result, voting for the president will rise from 350,000 people in 1824 to 2.4 million people in 1840. Now, um, another important factor is the two-party system that we had in the past 
there was an effort to um, figure out what is the best way to nominate candidates, which is basically the process of naming them. Right? Each party has to decide who they're going to run for Senate in each state. Each party has to decide who they're going to run for president. Now, um, when we look at it, there's a nominating shift where parties start nominating their candidates at conventions, where they'll have once a year or once an election cycle, and everyone is invited to one central location to participate in a party election to nominate a candidate. What this replaced was state caucuses, and what made caucuses difficult was they were often happening in closed quarters, and only the well-connected could get in. It was these backroom dealings of it wasn't the people deciding who could become their uh, nominated and could be candidates in the general election, but it was really the well-connected political party bosses that were doing this. So as a result, we have a rise of third parties. Two of the more well-known are the anti-Masonic party and the working men's party in this era. So as we move forward, by 1832, all states except South Carolina allow voters to choose the state's slate of electors for the presidential election, being the Electoral College. So therefore, presidential campaigns now have to be conducted on a national scale. You no longer just have to go to the few states that matter. All of a sudden, we're going to go to many different states to try and gather as much support as possible for the Electoral College. And state local officials are now going to be elected. Is a democratization of the process of elections during this time period. The common man that you mentioned before. Right. It's that we, the, the whole reason why we care about your, the, the fact that we, the government gives every individual citizen in our country the right to vote is because we care about their opinion. We want their input. It's a participatory sport democracy. So what we see here is state and local officials have been appointed, which means the powerful get to put their people in charge that are going to be loyal to them. This is a shift now where we move towards elections at almost every level, and that is a dramatic um, change during this time period. It's really important to note that this is a dramatic shift in the Founding Fathers' conception of the Republic. Keep in mind, it's under the Enlightenment conception of the Republic, the ancient Roman Republic, that you elect the best, the brightest, the elite to represent your interests, not them being the megaphone of your voice, but you pick them that they make the decisions for you. Now we're changing it up and we're allowing the people to respond and speak for themselves. So with it becomes a lot of benefits, but also a lot of disadvantages. Remember the fear for a lot of founding fathers before this was the fear of mob democracy. Mm -hmm. So you're beginning to see a lot of participation from the common man, but it's going to significantly alter political elections, politics, the way politicians interact with the electorate for many, 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 many years to come. Yeah, so we see that example here in the 1830s and 1840s where campaigns now are not just intellectual pursuits. Right. All of a sudden it has to become entertainment. Right. You have to connect with the common man. You have to get the attention of right. that person who has never voted before and say, I'm worth voting right. for. So you have parades, marching bands, rallies outside the campaign rallies that we're familiar seeing now. Those start in this era when they're opening up the de uh, democracy to all people. So they're trying to appeal to the masses. And at the same time, with entertainment, what sells more than anything right. we know on television, on radio press. now, it's conflict right. and arguing. Right. So the rise of mudslinging is basically character defamation. If Nick and I are in an argument and we're political foes, rather than me saying my position on this issue is right. better than yours, I'm going to say that your wife <laughs> right, is a lady right. of the night. Right. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And a person of that character, if you can ha marry someone that is a person of that type of character, right. you don't have the judgment to be a politician. We'd rather watch a football game or a boxing match than C-SPAN and people kind of <laughs> debating about ideas, right? It's yeah. more interesting to fight a fight than like attend a professorial college lecture. Yeah, and that, most people don't really want to, to listen to What's the difference? Uh, the, is debate club have bigger argument, uh, bigger audiences or does the homecoming game That's a football? very good point. And you know that I mean? really kind of... Tells is a testament to the interest level. There's social the elements of to course. it as well, of course. But what happens here during the term uh, time of Jackson is what we call the spoils or the rotating system. Right. So prior to this administration, the federal government employees were all there as politics and political administrations from president to president would come and go. So you had people that worked for the White House and people that worked in Congress and people that worked in the administrations um, 
that basically were there for 4, 8, 12, 16, 20 years. They were career officers of working for the, they were working right. for the government, serving the country. Now that starts to shift where Jackson says, no, we need a fresh look at this. I'm going to bring in the people that were loyal to me. I'm going to bring in the people that were the greatest supporters, either in spirit or financially. They're going to be rewarded, and to the victor will go the spoils. Therefore, I can appoint whoever I want to these positions. And now that custom has been followed by nearly every president since, where when the president comes into power, they're able to appoint all these federal positions to whoever they want. And it becomes a ping-pong match, right? It will increase polarization in a two-party system, right? The Democrats will elect their own. The Republicans will elect their own. Democrats will elect their own, Republicans will elect their own. And it's going to also increase patronage and loyalty to a particular party. And that's not necessarily a, prob a problem, but uh, we are now, the criteria for civic duty is based on loyalty to party, not country. Keep in mind that James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, they wrote in the Federalist Papers the idea of factions. We're beginning to form factions in this country and this is going to make a lot of founding fathers roll in their graves you have to understand this yeah and one of the things that's important that you mentioned is the loyalty aspect is right, that right for most for much of the first you know 60 or so years of our country's history up until this point the most important thing was where you were from right. and where your loyalty lied with the government, as you mentioned. Right. And with this, it starts to encourage and incentivize right. the patronage you mentioned, incentivizing the loyalty to one party. Oh, wait, you used to work for a Republican? Then the Democrat is not going to elect, right. uh, going to appoint you. Right. Oh, wait, didn't you didn't you work for that Democrat before? Then the right. Republican is not, and vice versa. So with the rise of Jackson and his democracy of the common man, it became an incentivization of partisanship. Right. Your career succeeded based on how partisan you were. Or simply put, this was an environment in which a figure like Jackson could take advantage of, right? We have a lot of democrat uh, dem democratization going on, and actually no figure in history better embodies the common man, or at least by perception, than Andrew Jackson. He's going to be a self-made man of the West. He's not going to be college-educated, although he is a self-taught lawyer. He's going to be a rugged individualist. He will chew tobacco, engage in dueling, display a very fiery, violent temper, being a Irish Scotsman himself. He will seem to defend his friends, and we will talk a little bit more in class about the Peggy Eaton affair, about loyalty and personal loyalty. So this, this figure kind of becomes the flag of this movement that kind of starts to develop prior to his ascendancy in politics. Keep in mind... The man within the political party, Thomas Jefferson at the time, prior to his death, hated Andrew Jackson because he saw him as someone that would dissolve and deteriorate the very principles that this man would fight for. Yes, as you mentioned before, he took advantage of the climate. And because of the institution of government, right. the, the people that were career politicians, he very much was an anti-establishment candidate. And he argued that we need fresh blood in there. Right. We need new people in this government because these people have been there too long and they are not listening to the common man. In many ways, he was right because right. Right. most of America was not able to vote, okay? Especially uh, those that weren't major property owners up right. until this right. time period, okay? Now, that brings us to 1824 where he is forced to run for the presidency once again. Now, he the party runs uh, four different candidates, and they basically represent the four different regions right. of the country at the moment. We have Henry Clay in the West, and the West is considered Kentucky. Jackson is from Tennessee. Right. He is from the quote-unquote West. Right. William Crawford is from the South, and John Quincy Adams from the North up in Boston. So, the most important thing in the presidential election is the electoral college right majority of the electoral votes not how many votes you get right so what's unique here is jackson wins the majority of the popular vote but only a plurality of the electoral vote okay and he fails to receive a majority of the electoral vote okay that's the most important so the decision in our constitution goes to the house of representatives similar to the election of 1800 clay decides to withdraw and he uses his influence in the house to support adams and then when Adams wins, he nominates Henry Clay as the Secretary of State. This seems a little fishy. Jackson and his supporters are frustrated. This goes on to later uh, be known as 
the corrupt bargain is that Clay says, hey, I can get my people to vote for you as long as I get something in return. And that was the secretary's position. Right, and the reason why we studied the election of 1824 is not so much because of what happened, but its impact. So what happens as a result of this, John Quincy Adams wins the battle, but he loses the war. It will infuriate the common man and give the impression that the elites in the East were corrupt. It will also split the Democratic-Republican Party into two into the Jacksonian Democrats, those who support Jackson, and the Republicans as a result of this election. So it will literally break away from the era of good feelings. You will have a two, uh, work back to a two-party uh, system right now. And Jackson's message was about the corruption. Right. There was no better example of that than how he lost in 1824. Right. So he runs once again four years later, and he wins. The victory was a message that the common masses we're going to finally be able to rival the elite, and the common man rejoiced. So the presidency of Andrew Jackson, the one way you could describe him as really frugal Jeffersonian is that he vetoed more bills. Basically, Congress is passing all these legislation to spend money, and he is trying to cut it off and stop it before it's possible to happen. All the bills that he vetoed were more than the previous six presidents combined. And one especially is the funds that he what denied the use, it was known as the Maysville Road, because of the fact that it was in the state of Kentucky, because that was Henry Clay he was trying to get back at. And being a man of the West and being the man for the common man, he's going to want to support policies that effectively give them more opportunity. And this, unfortunately, is going to bear a significant detrimental impact on Native Americans. He will sympathize with land-hungry U.S. citizens and compel Native Americans to relocate and settle west of Mississippi. In 1831, he will sign the Congressional Indian Removal Act, which will force resettlement of thousands of Indians westward uh, beyond the Louisiana Territory. In 1832, there's even going to be a Supreme Court case in the state of Georgia in which our boy John Marshall will rule in favor of the Cherokee Nation, claiming that they are in fact a sovereign nation and we should treat them as such and we should respect some of the treaties that have been previously arranged. And famously and mythologically, we don't know if this is true or not, uh, based on the decision that Marshall has laid down to Jackson, Jackson has been reported to say, well, Marshall has made his decision. Let's see if he can enforce it. Exactly. So he basically ignores it. So we have a president that is for the common but ignores the institutional policies that have been established since Marbury v. Madison. To protect the government. Correct. Yes. So in, by 1835, most of these Indians will reluctantly comply with the law. However... There were going to be some people that will stay behind. So from 1835 to 1838, we will have an event known as the Trail of Tears. This will be a forced removal of Native Americans be, uh, and, and, and basically pushing them out west. In 1836, there will be a bureau, a government agency of Indian affairs, that will be established to res facilitate the, uh, the resettlement initiative. The U.S. Army will be in charge of conducting this bureau, and they will force 15,000 Cherokees to leave Georgia. And the hardships of the resettlement will cause the deaths of 4,000 Indians. Now, another significant thing that happens during the Jackson administration is known as the nullification crisis. So in 1828, the federal government passes a tariff. It's meant to be a protective tariff. The South Carolina state government declares this tariff to be unconstitutional. They view it as it, um, the federal government is overreaching their bounds and clamping down on their economy and restricting their ability to be successful. Specifically, the southern states that rely on exports are not going to be happy when tariffs happen because countries that we place tariffs on are going to respond in kind and their products are not going to be able to compete on the market on the world scales, uh, on the world trade market. So because of this, this nullification theory that they reference back to John C. Calhoun is mentioned. Webster, Daniel Webster from Massachusetts debates Robert Hayne over the nature of the federal union under the Constitution and whether or not South Carolina has the right to do this. This They end up convening a com, uh, having a convention in the state to decide, and the state government in South Carolina does nullify the tariff not only of 1828, but also 1832. This resolution they passed forbids collection of any tariffs within their borders in South Carolina. So Jackson responds, as you would expect him to, with great strength. That is where he first persuades Congress to pass the force bill. Right? He's preparing the military for any dissent, and that gives him the authority to send in troops to force South Carolina to abide by the federal law. Remember, 
The federal law is supreme and above any state laws. So this proclamation to the people of South Carolina, he tells them, just as a reminder, nullification will be considered treason. And therefore, Congress lowers the terms of the tariff as part of a negotiation to prevent any large-scale conflict. So South Carolina government backs down because of the force bill, because of the threat of troops moving in on their territory, and they later rescind the resolution. But what this is is unique because Jackson almost goes back on his principles. He was elected as a someone who looked out for the common man. He was a state's rights person. And now here he is wielding the power of the federal government to crush the state's rights ability to contest it. So he uses the military to enforce the will of the federal government and many people that had trusted him do not view him as the state's rights, um, ad, state's rights defender that they thought he would be. But he, they will begin to trust him because he will also share their view on anti-slavery movement. And he will make measures and use his executive power to stop anti-slavery literature from being sent through the U.S. mail. So Jackson, although he does go against some of his principles in during this nullification pro, uh, crisis, he does recognize the legitimacy of the federal government. He does recognize the value in keeping the union together. He's also going to kind of send an olive branch to yeah. some of these slave-holding elites by saying, don't worry, we're not going to make sure I'm that we use the U.S. Side. mail. We will not proliferate anti-slavery radical opinion during your in your regime. I'm still on your side on the most important right. issue. That's kind Correct. of the message he was saying. So um, the next significant event is really a bank veto. So the second bank of the United States is up for rechartering. Right. And one of the things that the common man or the farmer, especially on the Western frontier, is frustrated with is their view that the national or federal bank is the thing that causes them problems. So it was an image issue that Jackson decided it is better politically for me to veto this, even if it's not going to economically help the country. And also the policies that are made by the National Bank are going to be uh, you know, contingent upon people with money, people with capital. Who doesn't have capital? Who doesn't have money? These farmers. And they're going to want to promote this idea of state banks. The reason why is that local banks are going to probably know the farmers. Their regulation and rules and policies might be more reflective and more sympathetic to their situation. The interest rates might be lower so that they can encourage them to loan it out. So a lot of farmers at this point really wanted to dissolve the national bank and encourage what we call state banks. Yeah, the overall view of the, the National Bank was simply that it catered to the merchant class right. and to the Northeast right. financial the sector of our country. It did not work for all the common men that he was supposed to be representing. So because of this, there's That's a conflict between Jackson and Henry Clay. He challenges Jackson, saying, majority in Congress want to pass this bank rechartering bill. You need to sign it. He passes the bill. Jackson doesn't blink, he vetoes it right back. And it really was something that he did as a political maneuver because right. he knew his people would like this, that he showed up and he was going against what everyone else wanted in Washington. So he wins re-election as a result of this. Keep this in mind, the common man has now an impact on politics. Jackson correctly calculated that he can veto and survive the next election. This would have never happened before the introduction of universal male suffrage. All right, so then when Jackson takes his second term, we have to deal with this issue of what is known as calling pet banks. So Jackson tries to attack, attack the bank by withdrawing all federal funds aided by Secretary of Treasury Roger Taney. And by allocating this money into state banks, he's able to withdraw the power that that federal bank once had. This is where Jackson's financial policies, he's intent on being a strong man and kind of getting his way politically and he steps a little oversteps his bounds here because his policies lead to wild speculation. When we say speculation in this curriculum, what we're focusing on, focused on is people investing money in things without any real evidence to prove that there's going to be success. Right. If you deregulate it, in other words, you let the, the states kind of make the pop-up banks here and there and everywhere, everyone has different policies, different rules, different ways of lending money. You're going to have a lot of lending and people are not going to be able to pay back. And that will lead to a rapid increase in inflation. And unfortunately, Jackson is not going to be much of the financial 
uh, like connoisseur. Uh, connoisseur that thank you and his response will be issuing the presidential order known as the species circular this will allow future pur purchases of federal lands would now be backed up by gold and silver instead of banknotes so it was an attempt to kind of stop what was happening as a result of his own policies the banknotes will lose value and land sales will plummet and the party that will be responsible for the panic of 1837 will be his so let's say you're making $10,000 a year. One of the major problems in, in our economic system is inflation. Okay, you're making a standard level of uh, income and a salary. If all of a sudden the value of the dollar goes down and your purchasing power goes down as uh, well, you're going to have a difficult time. And that's what really was caused by this recession is that every time we had a bank panic or any time we had this type of speculation and wild um, concern within the economic system, it was usually around the concept of inflation. The dollar has weakened. You can buy less with it. People now have money that they work very hard for that doesn't carry as much weight. And that's the significant term. Okay, and that is what led to the Panic of 1837. So even though Jackson was no longer in office, he was um, really considered the person to blame. All right. So when we look at how Jackson left, his departure and his legacy, he had two terms. He persuades Democrats to support his vice president, Van Buren, and Van Buren ends up have being a success. Why? Because of the popularity of Jackson with amongst the masses. But the Whigs try to throw the election in the House once again by nominating three candidates. They try to split up the electoral vote. Uh, Van Buren ends up taking 58% of the electoral vote and winning and being the successor to Jackson. Unfortunately, the Van Buren's presidency will be stained by the Panic of 1837 and the policies that Jackson implemented. And the Whigs will take advantage of that situation. And the organized Whig Party, they're going to restructure their name. So they're going from Republican to Whig, and they're going to have a strong position to defeat the Democrats during the election of 1840. How they're going to do it is they're going to nominate the folksy war hero named William Henry Harrison. And they're going to take a little bit of, uh, of the medicine that strategy, Jackson kind of, yeah. the strategy that Jackson kind of implemented by saying, hey, look, we can, we can appeal to the common man too. They're going to emphasize his humble origins by launching what they would call the log cabin and hard cider campaign, which was him going around, uh, actually st sitting at his house and serving hard cider to people that want to come talk to him it allowed for more accessibility between candidates and the populace one of my favorite quotes ever is i forget who said it but it's about politicians is that <laughs> every politician is going to try and convince you that right. they were born in the middle of the woods in a lot <laughs> in a log cabin with starts. nothing right. that they built themselves right. and that's the thing that it, this is really the origin of that the common dream. man politics right, the american right. dream i came from nothing to i understand right. you right. vote right. for me right all right, and so that concludes the middle section of our period four notes. We will come back with a conclusion about the social effects of this era. All right. See you next time.